0: Listening to Breakthrough News, and this is the Punch Out. We're following the news all day, so you don't have to. Giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, that's right. We are back with you here on The Punch Out 12-9-2020. We are well into December here. Very happy to be back with you on The Punch Out here, 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, Monday through Friday, 15 minutes. Everything you need to know, what's in the headlines, what's not in the headlines, and many other contextual things about all of those issues. This is it here on The Punch Out today. We're going to be talking a little bit more about Venezuela. How the socialists there were powered by the working class in their victory in the election on Sunday. We're going to talk about how capitalism, yes, capitalism, caused the ICU bed crisis that we're seeing now as the pandemic continues to increase here in the United States. And before we get to those two stories, though, we will circle back around to the ongoing mass impoverishment phase of the pandemic and how Congress just seems to be fiddling as working class lives are burning. (laughs) Please, <laughs> please. Yes. So, you know, yesterday in Portland, a scene unfolded that uh, quite frankly, I mean, let's hope not, but I think we have to assume, uh, this will in fact be the case, a scene that will become much more likely, much more common across the country. That's the police breaking up protest of a hundred plus demonstrators. Maybe more we'll see in later days, trying to fight back against a foreclosure and an eviction. The eviction took place in one of Portland's last and deeply embattled black communities. Uh, was allowed to go through despite the bans on evictions because it's related to non-payment of a mortgage, it seems. But nevertheless, Maurice Fain, who's the historic Mississippi Avenue Business Association leader or one of the leaders of that business association, said about this process of gentrification here in the Black communities of Portland, told us to Oregon Public Broadcasting, you can clearly see that something ain't right with this. They're raising the rent up high, causing these people to be displaced. And from our vantage point here at Breakthrough News, Maurice is right. Something ain't right. We are in a situation where, according to an analysis by the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities, 83 million adults, 83 million adults, that's 34 percent, 34 percent of all adults in the country reported that their household found it somewhat or very difficult to cover usual expenses such as food, rent or mortgage or car payments, or medical expenses, or student loans in the last seven days before they answered the survey. 83 million adults, 34% of all adults in the country can't pay for their basic expenses, yet Congress here in the United States still can't agree on anything to help. Now, you might be hearing here and seeing that the ball is rolling on some sort of negotiations. People seem like they're doing something, but there is a lot of stuff just flying around out there. A lot of press conferences happening, and we don't know what the final bill will be or if they will be one. But just to lay it out for you, the whole thing now is predicated on four main points. That's liability protection, aid for cities and states, unemployment insurance, and stimulus checks. Now, liability protections are being heavily pushed by some Republicans. And basically what that has to do is making sure that businesses and colleges and colleges Don't have to be or can't be found accountable for unsafe environments that cause people to get sick and in some cases probably die. It's essentially blanket immunity, a get out of jail free card for many people who did not do the right thing by their workers or by their students during this pandemic. And there were big consequences. Mitch McConnell has been pushing this get out of jail free card for the worst businesses very hard, but now seems willing to drop it in exchange for gutting unemployment insurance. Aid for cities and states also a big sticking point. Something state governors of both major parties have been lobbying Congress for, but in Congress only Democrats have picked this up. Obviously, the economic uh, impact of the pandemic is looking like because most of these states are not going to tax the ultra wealthy billionaires that live there. Looking like they could result in millions of public sector job cuts due to tax shortfalls. So they want this money from the federal government to prevent these millions of jobs being lost. Rightfully so. Some Republicans are dead set against, but the White House now seems. To have jumped into it saying that they are for this state and local money. But as mentioned above, they're doing it as part of a deal that does it in exchange for gutting unemployment insurance. Which is the next big issue, the expanded unemployment benefits. Now, there's a proposal to give an extra $300 boost to unemployment payments uh, by a group of centrist senators. Mark Warner is one of those types of people. The White House proposal, now backed by McConnell, it seems, just drops that totally. An exchange would add a $600 stimulus check for adults, $600 for each child that a person had. Senator Bernie Sanders leading an effort to make that $600, $1,200. So, I mean, there you have it right there. The White House, Mitch McConnell. Connell trying to basically say, we'll give you $600 and that's it. Some people saying, we'll give you $300 over top of what you already get. I think it's some people saying, let's get $1,200. That probably won't happen. How it's all going to shake out, not entirely clear, but it's just – from your own life, just hearing those numbers and hearing what they're talking about. I think it's very clear for anyone who has any closeness to this crisis that none of this is really going to meet the depth of the crisis. In fact, I mean, talking about just rental assistance here, we're talking about evictions. The only thing that's even been mentioned in a bill or a draft bill put together by some centrist senators about this issue, $25 billion, a fraction of what would actually be needed. And it's not clear if there'll be any sort of assistance for renters as it concerns mortgages. It's all up in the air. So, who knows what's gonna happen, but it's not enough given the scale of the crisis. 34% of adults can't meet their basic expenses week to week. Now, there's all sorts of other issues that'll be thrown in there like I mentioned, but it's all going to come around those four broad pillars. But whatever passes actually is really just going to be a stopgap. In fact, the people in Congress are already talking about that. Well, something's going to happen next year at some point. Who knows? That could be February. That could be March. Who knows? Something will happen at some point. So we don't need to do that much now, despite the fact that we're facing mass impoverishment, 34% of adults uh, and those in their household unable to either eat or pay the rent or, or, or any of their other major expenses that are out there. Let me just give you one major stat on how misplaced these priorities are. In 2019, the U.S. government spent $900 billion on the war in Afghanistan. In 2019, the total rent paid by people in the U.S., $512 billion. Yet funding for Afghanistan, no brainer, but helping people keep a roof over their head seems to be an afterthought for most politicians in the U.S. This is something that Bernie Sanders spoke about very recently on MSNBC. We are the only major country on earth not to guarantee health care to all people as a human right. And if there's anything that I hope this terrible, terrible pandemic is showing the American people is how far behind we are other countries around the world in taking care of our children, taking care of the unemployed, taking care of the elderly, taking care of the sick. We're the richest country in the history of the world. 92 million people today are uninsured or underinsured. That is beyond belief. That is why, in my view, we've got to move to Medicare for All, single payer, to guarantee health care to all people. Well, a blazing headline in the New York Times this morning noted that <laughs> just Terrible situation here. It shocked me when I woke up. ICU beds are reaching capacity in hospitals across the nation due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Some people are saying this thing is easing, but the New York Times reporting that hospitals serving more than 100 million Americans reported having fewer than 15% of intensive care beds still available as of last week. Many areas are even worse off. One in 10 Americans across a large swath of the Midwest, South, Southwest, lives in an area where intensive care beds are are either completely full or fewer than 5% of beds are available. Again, that's from this morning to New York Times. I mean, obviously, a, just a grim reminder of the early days in the spring when hospitals were overwhelmed in the first surge of COVID-19. And I think that honestly, that makes this a good time to remember that this is not a random problem. This is not something that's just out there. Capitalism is truly directly responsible for the shortage of hospital beds around the nation. I mean, it's honestly pretty simple as hospitals have become bigger and bigger private businesses and The free market has entered even more into healthcare than it already was. Investors and executives... And even some people in government who are trying to, uh, you know, mirror this this market logic have demanded efficiency, better use of resources in hospitals. So they said, cut the hospital capacity. There's not enough people in here. There's too many empty beds. You need fewer beds, which is fewer unwanted costs. Implication being that you also have too many people working there. So let's get rid of some of these jobs and some of these workers because capacity is out of sync with occupancy, and we need to be efficient and ultimately more and more profitable by cutting things down to the bone. One 2006 study on this very issue noted that boston's reduced hospital capacity was first and foremost due to the deregulation of rates and a forced focus on efficiency in this new free market medical environment there new york state lost 20,000 hospital beds 20,000 hospital beds, not just to these same free market reasons in the private sector, but major cuts by Republican and Democratic governors to the public hospital and health system dating back to 2006. A study from Kaiser Health News that came out earlier this year noted that, quote, more than half of the counties in America have no intensive care beds. Why is that? Well, it's because there aren't enough people in those areas with health insurance for health care providers to even be able to afford the expensive equipment to run an ICU unit. Not enough people with insurance to be able to afford it. Half the counties in America, no ICU beds. Yet none of this ever seems to come up at all in any of these stimulus discussions in the entirety of 2020. The need to strengthen and expand our healthcare system in overall ways. I mean, the pandemic has just ripped the veil off of all of the flaws of the system here. But for the sake of profit, We just keep kicking the can down the road on a failed system. Clearly, the government and these big business people who back them want to be saved by a vaccine from making any major structural changes in this country. Remember... Remember, Joe Biden said for the richest Americans, nothing will fundamentally change. And, you know, maybe it'll work out that the vaccine will come and I hope everything turns to normal as quickly as possible. Terrible situation. But what about the next public health crisis? Do we plan the future for people or for profit? That's a big question for this century and one neither of the major parties is taking up. (laughs) And finally here, just want to circle back around to Venezuela. Now, I was able to get into some more of the CNE numbers. That's the National Electoral Commission. There not available yesterday. They're having some issues with their, their website, uh, as it were. And I've been assured that it's uh, technical issues, not any sort of attack on the website, for those who may be wondering. Nevertheless, was able to look at some of these numbers, still partial, some of the numbers coming in, but I just want to note a few things about it. First, the overall Chavista coalition, I was able to see the list vote, not just the PSUV, the main party, but the other parties allied with them. The overall Chavista coalition, 4.3 million votes. That's on top of the 3.8 million from the PSUV that I was talking about yesterday was 3.7 yesterday, 3.8 now. Either way, doesn't change much of what I said yesterday in terms of the contradictions and everything that's going on, but I think bolsters a lot of those points. So listen to yesterday's punch out where we did a deep dive into the numbers behind Venezuela's very free, very democratic elections. Now, another point I wanted to make here is, uh, since so much is being said about abstention, it's about some of the places where abstention was much lower than the national average. Now, only about 30, 31% of people turned out overall. So you got 70 odd percent of people in your sort of national average there of abstention, give or take a few percentage points. But look at some of the places where, you know, there was a much higher participation in Caracas, for instance, in Antimano, which is traditionally one of the city's poorest neighborhoods, the abstention rate was 55.6%. That's roughly 15% higher participation than the natural uh, than the national average. In the 23rd of January neighborhood, which is a well-known working-class neighborhood, uh, participation was about 12% above the national average. That's also in Caracas. The same can be said of San Augustine, also in Caracas, another popular neighborhood. Many collectives and communal organizations based out of there. And And the other two that I just mentioned, also 12 percent higher participation than the national average in a pure state. That's a stronghold of the radical socialist rule based Bolivar and Zamora revolutionary uh, current overall participation there in the state itself, 6% higher than the national average and up to 12% higher in some of the rural areas uh, where that organization I mentioned is very strong. In Simón Planas and Lara State, the same was true. Simón Planas is notable for being the home to some of the largest socialist communes in the country that embrace many of thousands of rural people, especially rural people, and a new collective project for living, working, and growing, and where electoral participation was also about 10% higher than the national average. So here's the basic point. Whatever else you can say about Those 4.3 million votes, it's clear that the core base of Chavismo is the poor and working classes of the urban and the rural areas. And it's it's also notable that many of the places I just mentioned are thick with communes and collectives and other expressions of popular power, grassroots democracy, if you will. In other words, there's a strong correlation between the areas with high levels of socialist organization rooted in communities and community projects where there was the least erosion of votes. The real foundation of the Socialist Project in Venezuela isn't authoritarianism, it's popular power in the working class and rural areas. That's the Punch-Out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms: Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. <laughs>